Well, good morning again. Welcome to the Medina East Campus of Grace Church. Thanks so much for being here this morning at our 11 o'clock service. So awesome to see the sea of lovely faces out there today. So thanks for being here. Uh, if you don't know me, just allow me a second to introduce myself. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus. And uh, today we are going to be continuing in a conversation that we began the week after Easter in a series that we've been calling <clears throat> Patterns That Change Us. And so essentially in this series, what we've been doing is we've been looking at kind of aiming at or, or shooting at one main aim or one main goal or one main purpose. And that purpose has really been to pursue and explore what it means to have a deepening relationship with Jesus and have a deepening relationship with Jesus and to learn more increasingly how to grow going forward in our walk with Jesus in that relationship. Now we here at the Medina East Campus, we think this is a pretty big deal, probably one of the biggest deals. And so we're pretty passionate about it. And so in this series, what we've done is we've created kind of a foundation or a home base in a passage of scripture for this series that was written by one of Jesus's own followers, this guy named John. And so again, we've been using this as a home base throughout this series to tee up a lot of these conversations. And you can find this passage in 1 John 2, 5 through 6. <clears throat> so listen to what John says here for a second. He says, this is how we know we are in him. In other words, if somebody were going to ask the question, well, how do I really know if I have an abiding, vibrant, rooted and connected relationship with Jesus? How do I know if that's the case? John says, well, this is how you know. And he says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. He must live as Jesus did. Now, I think this personally is a pretty profound statement, right? Because if I'm catching this right, if I'm reading what John is saying here correctly, it means that to say that you have a rooted and deep connection with Christ means that that relationship is gonna start to produce some things in your life that you're gonna to start to think differently. You're gonna think like Jesus thought. You're gonna to start to act differently. You're gonna act in ways that are conducive to what we see in the pattern of Jesus in the gospels as we read the Bible. You're gonna to start to relate with other people and interact in those relationships in the way Jesus did. Now, for me, when you think about a statement that John makes like this here, when you think about that, you might respond to that and say, well, that's a rather tall order, isn't it? And you might ask the question like I sometimes do, is something like that even possible? Is that possible? I mean, wasn't Jesus God come in flesh and all? Like I can't match up, I can't do what he did. Okay, and let's just say that it is possible. If it's possible to live as Jesus did, to think and to talk and to act and to relate like Jesus, what are some uh, things that I have access to? What, are, what is a power that I might be able to participate in that would help me transform and to live more and more as Jesus lived. And so if you're asking any of these kind of questions, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're curious about that, or even if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're investigating Jesus and you want to know more about what Christians or Christ followers say about what it means to live in a relationship with Jesus, man, you have come to the right place today. And I'm glad that you're here and you've plugged into the right series as well, because this series is rooted entirely in the conviction that guys, it is possible to grow to become more like Jesus. It is possible. Precisely because Jesus himself has given to us and has also demonstrated for us certain spiritual habits or patterns or rhythms or practices that when we incorporate these things into our lives and our walks with Jesus, these can be catalysts that produce and help produce our transformation. These things can become patterns that change us. And so throughout this series, we've been looking at several of these patterns. And for the last two weeks, so two weeks ago, we looked at the pattern of solitude, time spent alone with Jesus in that relationship. And then last week, we looked at kind of a complementary pattern, or we've been saying in the series, a symbiotic pattern or a symmetrical pattern, this pattern of community, time spent with other followers of Jesus connecting in that relationship. And so what we're gonna do today and next week is we're gonna shift gears a little bit and we're going to look at another pattern pair. And that pattern pair is the pair of fasting and feasting, fasting and feasting. And so next week, we'll take a look at this idea of feasting. But for this week, we are gonna hone in on this often strange, misunderstood, and for some of us, frankly, bizarre practice of fasting. 
And so as we begin to explore what Jesus and what the Bible might have to say about the nature, the purpose, and the motivations for fasting, uh, as we begin to do that, my hope is that I could share with you a little bit a personal story that is going to set the stage a little bit for this conversation about what the purpose of fasting is and how we can embrace this pattern. So uh, a couple months ago, so around about February, my role here at the church, as I mentioned, I'm a pastor here, so this is my job as well. Uh, my job here at the church kind of, uh, it, it increased a little bit, went through a little bit of a bigger season, a more heavy season where I was uh, kind of responsible for a, a lot more than I normally am. And usually what happens is if you have an increased responsibility and pressure at work, it also corresponds with an increased stress level. Anybody hear me? Anybody with me, right, at work? Yeah, so, and if you're not raising your hand, you're a liar, right? <laughs> I mean, no, no offense, but, but so increased stress level, and as any other normal red-blooded human being, uh, what I was looking for is to counteract some of that stress level with some de-stressors, right? You get the, when you clock out at work and you go home, you're looking for that hobby or that interest or that thing that's gonna help you decompress a little bit so that you can find maybe a little bit more rest and relaxation and peace in that thing so that you can recharge your batteries from when you go back into the office the next day. So again, round about that time, heightened stress level, looking for some de-stressors. My daughter comes home, my 10-year-old daughter, I have three kids, so my middle daughter comes home, and she comes home with this form, and she informs my wife and I that she says, Mom, Dad, I want to join chess club. <laughs> I want to join chess club. And I thought, that's it, chess club. And now, I loved chess growing up. I was never really good at it, because I never really took the time. I was lazy as a kid, like most kids are, shh. I'm not saying, just saying. So I was lazy as a kid, loved chess, wanted to be really good at it, but didn't really, really want to invest the time and the energy into it. But I thought, here is a great opportunity, not only to de-stress, but also to invest a little bit more in my relationship with my daughter. And frankly, just to allow to blossom the obviously superior chess mind that I know that I have deep down in there somewhere. I know it's there. And so I got really excited and I said, Hannah, let's play chess. Let's make, it, let's make it a rule. Like if I come home from work, we're gonna play chess after dinner at least once, maybe twice. And so we started this rhythm and this practice and we played for night after night for about two weeks. And when that two weeks was over, Hannah came to me at the normal time. It was about uh, 6.30 at night when we would play. She came to me and I said, Hannah, you ready? She said, Dad, I don't wanna play you anymore. And I thought, the first thing I thought was, why? Why are you bailing on me, you little rug rat? Like, what are you doing? Like, this is a dream of mine, come on. And, and she, she said, no, I just don't feel like playing. I'm like, come on, Hannah. Why, why is it really that you don't wanna play? She said, I don't wanna lose anymore. <laughs> now, now listen, I know that in youth sports culture today, everybody gets a trophy just for showing up. Not in my house, okay? <laughs> She is gonna learn the hard way. And it's true, I never let her win. I know that's sad and it's terrible, but never let her win. It's not gonna happen in my house that way. So she's no longer playing. And I'm like, well, I still need this de-stressor. I need me some chess, right? And then it hit me like, where am I gonna find this? It hit me. I thought, I know exactly. My good buddy, best friend in the world. I'm gonna give him a buzz. And that is none other than Magnus Carlson. <laughs> One person plays chess in this room, just to let you know, because they laugh. Magnus Carlsen, right? So Magnus, I got this off of Wikipedia, and we know how reliable that is. So Magnus Carlsen, if you don't know this guy, he's a phenom. He's a world-renowned chess grandmaster. He's the current world chess champion. He's a two-time world rapid chess champion and four-time world blitz chess champion. And in case you weren't impressed, guys, check this out. Ready for this next stat? He has a peak classical rating of 2882. I don't know what that is either. So, but, but apparently, apparently he achieved it in 2014 and it's the highest in history. So, so I thought, yes, I've got it. Magnus, he and I, we're, we're not really friends, but I'd like to think that we're best friends, okay? So he's, he's Swedish born. I guess his name is Sven Magnus Carlsen or something like that. Don't even know how to say his name, but I thought, man, me and Magnus, we're gonna play. But here's the problem. Magnus is regularly found touring the world in chess championships. And a dodo like me at chess, like there's probably a, not a good chance I'm gonna be able to call him up. He's gonna be able to come over on my dining room table and play chess. So I had to come up with another solution. And I got, guys, I gotta tell you, I found it. The greatest app 
that has ever been invented in the history of the iPhone. I found it. It is the Play Magnus Carlsen chess app. Oh, man. I am a nerd, right? But I got to tell you guys, this is the greatest app in the history of the world. Now, in this app, you actually get to play Magnus Carlsen all the way from age five to age 28. He's 28 now as a world grandmaster and chess champion from five to 28. And here's the deal. You start at age five. And when you beat that electronic age five version of Magnus Carlsen, you graduate to age six and then to age seven. And then the difficulty gets a little harder and harder and harder. So I set out on my journey to vanquish the world grandmaster. I started at five, crushed him, (laughs) crushed him, moved on to age six, demolished Magnus Carlsen with your cute little pirate hat, six-year-old Magnus Carlsen. Graduated to age seven, easily defeated Magnus. Went to age eight, found a way to checkmate Magnus. And listen, I gotta tell you, someone injected Magnus Carlsen with a superhuman chess serum between the ages of eight and nine. Because when I got to age nine, it's just so frustrating. Like, this guy's superhuman. And, and I look at him and I look, I guess he curse you, electronic version of Magnus Carlsen with your gloating smile and your ski goggles so cleverly placed on your forehead. Like, I got so invested to try to beat Magnus Carlsen at age nine. And night after night after night, I pursued a revenge that never to this day has happened. Never to this day. This guy is superhuman. And I got so consumed night after night. And I got to be honest with you guys. There were some nights where I, I played Magnus over 10 times a night. 10 times a night. And so obviously I'm diving into this thing. And then it hit me at one moment. Man, what initially was supposed to be a stress reliever and a means to invest further into my relationship with my daughter had now consumed so much of my time, my energy, and my attention. The the energy that it was supposed to give me was being zapped by this feeling of revenge. You see, I got so dependent on this stupid chess app as a means to fill something in me that I perceived to be lacking. Like, I had stress in my life. There was a lack of peace. And I thought that if I just went to Magnus Carlsen, And it's somehow that that was going to fill me and this desire that I had for rest and relaxation. And I realized, man, this has got to stop. I got to do something about this. I knew in that moment when I finally figured this out that I had to make a decision. But here's the thing. I also knew that my cognitive decision had to be followed with some concrete action. In other words, that in order to remedy this thing, I was gonna have to unplug from the Play Magnus Carlsen chess app for a season in order to holistically reorient myself to a reality that had gotten altogether lost in that season of stress and pressure. Now, hear me out. I know that every single one of us has an obsession with chess. I get that, I I realize that, it makes a lot of sense. But even if that's not your deal, I am convinced that there is at least one thing, if not more, in every one of us that we believe, we have something in our lives that we believe, that we wind up obsessing over, that will fill us or fill some kind of void and emptiness in our lives that we perceive that we lack at a deep fundamental level. Like for some of us, it's sports, isn't it? So you consume yourself with sports talk radio. And when you're at home, you're on the ESPN app and you're watching every single game on TV. Or maybe for you, it's youth sports. You live vicariously. You consume the achievements of your children because they're in every single sport they could possibly be in. You make every single game, every single practice, and every tournament because, again, there's like this void or this emptiness that you think, man, if I, if I can just live through the successes of my kids in sports or through sports or whatever, then somehow that's going to make me whole. That's going to fill me and give me nourishment and sustain me. For some of us, it's not sports. For some of you, it's screens, right? So whether that be Netflix, Netflix binge watching, I just want to be entertained. I just want to decompress. We consume it. Some of us, it's the screens of video games. Some of us, it's the screens of iPhones. Like you, you, you're so wired and attached like I was to one certain app that you can't wait to hear the ding. 
and you go immediately for that ding to get the latest update so that you can dive in again. And listen, what I want to say to you is all of these things, sports, Netflix, video games, iPhones, all this kind of stuff, I mean, they're not bad things in and of themselves. These things have no intrinsic or inherent moral value, but many of these things can become so toxic for us in our lives because they can lead us to believe that we are dependent upon them to satisfy our hunger, our thirst, and our pursuit for contentment in life. And see, I think I've become convinced that this strange and often misunderstood practice, this pattern of fasting, is actually a God-given gift that is extended to us and followers of Jesus that can help us decontaminate from a lot of these false and toxic assumptions. What I'm proposing is that in fasting, God has provided his followers of Jesus, God has provided a kind of reset button for our lives. A whole life reset button, not just an inward decision reset, but also an inward decision that's combined with an outward practice reset that can help us reorient ourselves and in our lives around the things that we are truly dependent upon to receive the nourishment that we need to find the purpose and the meaning for our lives. So you might be asking the question, well, what do I mean by uh, fasting as being a kind of whole life detox? Well, suffice it to say, if you were going to open your Bible and you were going to thumb through its pages, you will not find one particular, one specific passage or one particular verse that gives a comprehensive or complete summary or definition of what fasting is. You just won't find that. Uh, instead, what you will find is you will find a number of individuals or figures within the Bible and its story that fast, who are fasting as a second-natured kind of response to a circumstance or an event that has happened or occurred in their lives. So unfortunately for us, what is second nature to them, they understood the nature and the purpose of fasting and they did it in response to these events. What is second nature for them often becomes opaque or fuzzy for us. And so what we're gonna need to do is we'll need to look at a few of these cases where people fast as a natural response to something that they're going through so that we can piece together just what it is that this practice might help us or catalyze in us in our pursuit and our relationship with Jesus to grow in these ways. And so what we're gonna do here in the next just couple minutes is I wanna highlight four different circumstances in life that you find in the Bible that motivated people to respond with a fast. Uh, now I've adapted these four things from a guy who wrote a book, his name is Donald Whitney. And the book he wrote is this book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. Now, if you go out on amazon.com and you search this title, Spiritual Dis Disciplines for the Christian Life, you could find that book. It's not really that expensive. I just wanna say it's a great supplement for a lot of the things and the patterns that we're talking about in this series. So Donald Whitney wrote this book. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at four, again, circumstances in the lives of people who fasted in the Bible and try to piece this thing together a little bit. And Donald Whitney's gonna help us in that. All right, so firstly, in the Bible, if you look, when people fast, you find that people fast when they are expressing grief over a loss. Expressing grief over a loss. So another one, in other words, if there is a loved one who has passed away, a loved one who is close, and there is the sense of grief and mourning and pain of a loss, that occurs in the lives of people who've experienced the passing of a loved one, or if there's a, a heavy breach in relationship and the relationship has been severed, the relationship has experienced death, a natural reaction or response is to fast to these things. You can actually see this in 2 Samuel 1, 11 through 12. So here we have King David who has recently ascended to his kingship and he takes with him a number of his political leaders, military leaders, and a number of people from the nation of Israel of whom he is now king. And this uh, passage says, then David and all those men with him, they took hold of their clothes and they tore them. Now just real quick as an aside here, tearing of the clothes, you're like, what's that all about? Well, this was another outward natural expression of grief and mourning in this culture, in the culture of Israel. In other words, if internally you experienced the death of a loved one or loss of a relationship, it would feel like your heart was torn in two, that your heart was being ripped apart. And so your outward expression of that inward pain would be to tear your garments. So David and all the men with him, they take hold of their garments, their clothes, and they tore them. They mourned and wept, which are other 
responses of grief. They mourned and wept. And what did they do? They fasted till evening for Saul, the former king, and his son, Jonathan, and for the army of the Lord and for the nation of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Now, what's interesting to me about this is not only that David and the nation of Israel and its leaders are fasting as a response to the grief they're experiencing and the loss of their former king. What's interesting to me here is that if you were gonna look at the book of 1 Samuel, which precedes 2 Samuel 1, you would actually discover that the relationship between Saul and David throughout that book is sketchy at best. Like Saul was constantly pursuing David to try to kill him because he sensed that David was a threat to his throne. And yet, nevertheless, When David hears that Saul has passed away and other people in Israel, he is motivated, he is moved to fast. So we see fasting is expressing grief over a loss. We also find in the Bible that fasting is when you want to convey sorrow for sin. So in other words, if you have broken God's heart, if you've rejected God's will and his word for your life, his direction, you've said, no, God, I'm gonna go my own way. I'm gonna do my own thing. I don't want your input in my life. When you transgress against God or you do him wrong or you rebel against him and you want to turn away from those practices and that pathway that you've established in your life, you wanna turn away, you wanna reject the things that you're doing and return to God. If you wanna express sorrow and repentance for what you've done before God, the natural outward practice would be to fast. And you can actually see this in Joel 2, 12 through 13. So here Joel is a prophet, which is simply God's spokesperson. So God is speaking a message to a wayward and rebellious people of Israel through this guy, Joel. And this is what he says to Israel. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. In other words, that idea of like, you've been going the wrong way, turn around with everything within you, with your whole being, with all your heart, but not just with your heart, not just internally. He says, turn to me with fasting and weeping and mourning. Again, we have weeping and mourning and grief and this idea of fasting and being sorrowful for sin. God says through Joel, rend your heart and not your garments, right? See that again. Return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is gracious and compassionate. He's slow to anger and abounding in love and he relents from sending calamity. So God says through Joel to the nation of Israel, you've been rebellious and wayward, you've been sinful, but Israel, it is not too late for you to turn around. Why? Well, because God says, I'm gracious. I love to lavish my grace on you. I'm a compassionate God who understands your predicament. I'm also also a God who is ready to forgive you. Forgiveness is available. Israel, it's not too late. And what God says is, here's what you need to do express remorse for your wickedness, but also fast. So we see expressing grief over a loss, conveying sorrow for sin. People in the Bible also fasted when they were inviting God, God's wisdom and insight in major decisions that they were about to make or were making in their lives. And you can see this in Acts 14, 23. We meet these two characters, these two guys, Paul and Barnabas. Little context here, Paul and Barnabas are church planters. And they set out from this ancient city of Antioch and they go systematically through a number of principal cities in the region of Asia Minor. And in each city, Acts tells us that they preach the gospel of Jesus. People respond, they become followers of Jesus. And Paul and Barnabas establish those Christ followers as a church in that city. They build into them and then they go on to another city. And throughout this journey, they come to the end of this journey, this missionary journey, if you will. And on their way back to Antioch, their home base, they go again back through all the cities that they had planted in that journey beforehand. And as they're going back in each city, notice what they're doing. They're looking to support and reinforce these infant or fledgling congregations, these fledgling churches. And so Paul and Barnabas in doing this, they're appointing elders which are leaders. Like if you want a healthy congregation, if you want a healthy church, you have to have healthy leaders. These guys understand that. So as they're going back through, they appointed leaders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting, committed them, these leaders, to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So this is a big deal, a big decision that Paul and Barnabas are making and that these churches are making. Who, God, do you want installed and commissioned as leaders of your churches? Because leadership, they're saying leadership matters. This is an important decision. And somehow in fasting and prayer, they're inviting God's wisdom and insight before they make those key decisions. And then finally, we see that people fast in the Bible when they are appealing for God's protection 
and provision. Appealing for God's protection and provision. You can see this in Psalm 35, 11 through 14. Now in Psalm 35, Dave, it's a Psalm of David, again, that king that we talked about a few moments ago. And it is a really raw, just open-hearted Psalm. It's a cry, it's a prayer of David to God because David, his circumstance in life is that he has a number of people, enemies who are plotting his destruction, who are plotting his demise. And so David feels like he is a, he's, a, he's got a target on his back. He feels like he doesn't sense that God's provision and his protection is there. So this entire Psalm is like this heartfelt cry, God, please be near me, please respond to me. And in verse 11, he says, ruthless witnesses come forward. In other words, you gotta think of like a courtroom setting here. And David is on the witness stand, he's on trial, he's the defendant. And these ruthless witnesses are peppering him with accusation. He did this, he did that, he did this. And David says, they questioned me on things I know nothing about. It was like, you put, the, you put the lamplight of interrogation on me. You say, where were you on the night of ABC and XYZ? And David's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't do it, I'm innocent. And yet David says, what these guys do, they're after me. When I do good to them, he says, they repay me evil for good and they leave me like one bereaved. Here's this death language this morning, this separation and the grief that results. David is pretty much saying that these guys and what they're doing, they're leaving him like he has completely lost his life and his own livelihood. David is saying, God, I'm like a dead man walking. And what does David say? Yet when they were ill, in other words, rather than getting revenge on them when they were in a tight spot, he says, instead I put on sackcloth and I humbled myself with fasting. When my prayers returned to me unanswered, I went about mourning as though for my friend or brother. I bowed my head in grief as though weeping for my mother. Now, you might be asking a question as, as I do when I look at some of these circumstances, these cases in life. We've got expressing grief over a loss. We've got expressing remorse and sorrow for sin, inviting God's input and wisdom and guidance in major decisions. And we have appealing to God's provision and protection when we feel threatened in life. So you might think, well, this is an odd grouping, isn't it? And you might ask the question, well, what is it, if anything, exactly that ties all of these things together? Uh, is there anything that unites or that lies behind or underneath all these expressions of fasting that come as a result of these particular circumstances? And I think, generally speaking, what I've found is what unites these things is the concept of emptiness, what unites all these things together is the concept, this underlying principle of emptiness. That in each of these cases, there is an experience of loss by one of these individuals and a corresponding void in life that comes as a result of that loss that people long to be filled. And these biblical figures who respond in fasting, they appear to be convinced that this kind of emptiness that they're experiencing is, is an emptiness that can only be satisfied by God himself. Not by any other thing or element or person that they would tap into or consume in life. That they seem to be convinced that something is going on so severe and so important in their life that they realize the, the emptiness that they feel and the void that they feel as a result of that is something that can only and truly be filled by God. You look at all these four, right? Such that when you're experiencing grief over a loss, man, when we experience that relational loss in death, when we feel like that relationship of the person that we loved and cared for and loved and cared for us has been ripped from us and our hearts torn in two, we realize in that moment, in that setting, in that situation, that we are emotionally empty. Like we don't have a deeper part of the well of our soul to pull out something that will sustain us and comfort us. And when we come to that spot, we realize afresh that we have to be filled, not by stuff, not by material possessions, but only by God himself and the comfort that he can give. That when we rebel, when we sin against God's heart and we go our own way, when we reject God's good and fruitful purposes for our lives and try to live independently from him, when we do that, 
we come to the realization when it dawns on us that we're morally destitute. We're morally empty. We have no goodness and righteousness in ourselves that we can come to God with and say, see, look how good I am. No, we're, we're liquidated of all those things. And correspondingly, it means we need to be filled with God's forgiveness, filled to the brim with his grace, his compassion, and his love. And when we are empty of ideas and direction for major life decisions, I've been there. I know we all have, right? We got that big decision to make. Should we move? Should we take this job? Should we send our kids to XYZ school? All of these major life decisions where we're like, I don't know what to do. There are so many factors. They compound. They seem to be out of my ability to control. I'm at a loss. I'm empty. And when we sense that emptiness, we long to be filled with God's wisdom with God's guidance, with the plan that we know he has for us, with the good purposes we know he wants to direct our lives toward. And finally, when we're drained by fear, you ever been drained by fear? When it feels like our way of life is being threatened, when we feel like everybody and their grandma is out to get us. Man, we're empty. And we know we need to be filled with the confidence that can only come from God. Not from stuff, but from God alone. Here's what we can't miss. With the principle of emptiness, we have to see that fasting is a physical reminder. Fasting is a physical reminder that aligns our bodies with spiritual realities. The idea is when you go without food, your body lets you know that it's empty. And we, we, we experience the pain and the loss and the suffering and the frustration of that emptiness. What that's doing physically is reminding all of us of our true spiritual condition always. That without God at work in our lives, with God, without God animating us and motivating us toward his good purposes for our life, we are nothing. <laughs> We're just empty. Fasting is a physical reminder that aligns our bodies with spiritual realities. So when we fast, what we're doing, guys, is we're humbly coming to God on empty. We're owning it. We're coming to God on empty, and what we're doing is we are asking that we might be filled with his presence, his love, his grace, his goodness with God himself. Fasting is a concrete reminder that as human beings, and we all know this to be true at the end of the day, that we are all ultimately contingent beings. That we cannot live independently from God and God's provision and his work in our lives. I love the way that Donald Whitney, who we referenced moments ago, who wrote that book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. I love how he puts that, or he puts this in that book. He says, fasting is when we hunger for God. For a fresh encounter with God. And I, I've been there. Some of us even right now are saying, God, why do you feel so distant from me? God, I need you. I need a fresh encounter. I need to know you're there. For a fresh encounter with God, for God to answer a prayer, for God to save someone. We look at people that we love in our lives who are going from one thing to another to fill them and their life is totally empty because they're apart from Jesus and we are longing for them to come to know the fulfillment that comes from connecting with Christ. For God to save someone. For God to work powerfully in us, in our church. For God to guide us and protect us. Guys, listen, don't miss it. Fasting is when we hunger for God more and we hunger for the food that God made us to live on. <laughs> Fasting is when our hearts, our bodies, our soul, and our minds, all of us, hungers for God more than we hunger for the food that God made us to live on. Understanding these underlying principles, this idea of emptiness and longing to be filled, actually helps us better comprehend Jesus' own practice of this pattern of fasting. And we read about this. Matthew tells us about it in Matthew 4, 1 through 4. 
He says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I always thought this was kind of peculiar. This was more like one of those no duh Matthew moments, right? Like, of course he's gonna be hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. But I don't think that Matthew's just wasting parchment here. I don't think he's doing that. I think he's trying to tell us now that we understand the concept of emptiness and filling that Jesus intentionally went out into this desert getting ready to be tempted fully and completely on empty because he was living his life in the confidence that when he lived it before God on empty, he was readying himself to be filled in the fullness of God. So Matthew goes on, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So when the devil entices Jesus in this wilderness, when he tempts him with the possibility of providing for himself, of grabbing a hold of something else like bread to sustain him and give him nourishment in life, Jesus here, I love this, is ready to counteract that temptation, not by carbon up on a Snickers bar, not by carbon up on a Snickers bar, but instead He's ready to counteract temptation. He's ready to be filled by God and his word. God speaking. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, guys, Jesus here is showing us that abstaining from food is a profound declaration of confidence. That anyone who approaches God with a humble heart who is on empty is getting ready to be filled with God's word and strengthened by God's presence. And so when Jesus shows us this pattern and also the heartbeat behind it, we discover that we are in this practice, actually being we're being invited into reorienting ourselves to the reality of what is always true of us, the reality of our dependence on God. And then we are able to, when we're filled by him, respond to God and express praise and adoration and worship to him because we discover that he is infusing and filling our lives with amazing purpose. Fasting is about coming to God on empty and being filled with God's word and being filled with his presence. So given that principle, given that we understand this idea of emptiness and filling, we might then ask the question, all right, so I understand that in theory, but how would I go about doing that? How would I take a first step to embrace the pattern or the practice of fasting? What are some practical considerations that I need to think through if I'm going to run after this pattern in my life and see what it can do to facilitate and cultivate Christ-likeness in me? Because I don't know about you, fasting is one of those that is a little bit more of an easier said than done thing, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I know, uh, full, full confession time, I've had plenty of those like fasting false starts where I had great intentions, like I'm gonna go to God on empty and I'm gonna, and then at the end of the day, I didn't have a really good plan as to how I was gonna do that. And so I just wound up flaking out like my daughter playing me in chess, right? And so the question is again, in light of the reality of us flaking out on something like fasting and it not, not following through, in light of that real reality, what are some things that we need to consider? Uh, my response to that is actually to break what we need to consider down into three major questions that will hopefully help to guide you as you consider fasting. Three major questions. The first is, when should I fast? When should I fast? Uh, the second is, what should I fast? What should I fast? And the third and final one is, okay, what do I do when I fast? Like, what am I supposed to do with my hands? Like Tony talked about last week. Like, so when should I fast? What should I fast? And what do I do when I fast? So let's take the first one. This is really simple because I think we've already seen it, right? When will I fast? Well, we've taken a look at those four cases in the Bible where settings in life and circumstances motivated people to fast. And I think all of us can resonate with these and maybe some of us are in these spots right now. So if you've experienced a loss, again, whether there's been the death of a loved one or somebody you looked up to, or you've experienced the loss of a relationship, man, maybe that is a great opportunity to come to God on empty and express that grief to him by fasting. 
For some of us, we've been mired and walking in sin for a long time and God has revealed that to us by his spirit. He's convicted us. We wanna turn around. We wanna show contrition and sorrow for sin. Maybe it's about time too that we pair that inward mentality with the outward concrete profession that God, I'm serious. I wanna come to you to be filled with your forgiveness. And maybe again, there's a decision that you need to make in life right now that you need wisdom and guidance on that you just don't know what to do. Maybe what you need to do is invite in prayer God's input on that, but also fast. And maybe you feel like you've got a target on your back, somebody at work or somebody who's close to you in life has rubbed you the wrong way or they've done, they've done wrong to you. And maybe you're looking for God's, and rather than respond with revenge, maybe you just go to God on empty and you ask for his protection and for, you, for him to fill you with his provision in your life. So when will I fast? These are a great uh, set of biblically-based circumstances that might motivate you to do so. All right, second question. All right, what will I fast? What will I fast? Well, this question might be interesting to some of you because you're thinking, well, isn't fasting just all about food, right? Am I, I'm just supposed to abstain from eating food, whether it's one meal or three days or however long. Actually, that is true. If you look in the Bible, you will discover that every case of fasting that's referenced in the Bible is abstinence from food. Every case in the Bible. However, with the deep principle that we now understand, this principle of emptiness that lies behind fasting, this tells us that you can fast almost anything. You can fast almost anything. And so the logical question that you might want to ask yourself is, all right, so if I can fast almost anything, what is it? Like take an inventory a little bit of your life. You know yourself pretty well. Maybe ask somebody who knows you pretty well too. Ask the question, what do I instinctually reach for that I think will fill me or that I think will provide sustenance and nourishment or that I think gives me meaning and purpose in life? What is it that I just knee-jerk reaction reach for, right? So when I reach for that, like maybe, just maybe, the principle of emptiness says that I should fast that thing. So whether it is a meal a couple days worth of meals, or whether it's sugar, coffee, social media, a host of things. Man, again, whatever you instinctually reach for. Take an inventory yourself. Just think it through. But I would say that as we think that through and we ask that question, we should also not just ask that question of ourselves. We should ask that question of God as well. So there is not only a logical question, but a spiritual question. In prayer, this amazing gift that God has given us to exercise a conversational relationship with him, this prayer. Maybe ask God the same question and invite his input because maybe, just maybe, God sees something in you that you reach for that you don't even see in yourself. Ask God, what in my life, God, do I really think gives me worth and value when I consume it? Ask him. And when you do that, maybe here's a great opportunity when you're asking God that question to do this in concert with another pattern that we've already looked at a couple weeks back in this series, this pattern of solitude. Maybe it's about time for you to carve out some intentional time and intentional space, right? No distractions or where the, where the distractions are at a minimum where you can go to God, you can go to Jesus and you can ask him these questions. Maybe it's a good idea to practice solitude and ask this. And then when you do that, when you plug in and when you pray and you're asking I would encourage you to not do what I tend to do, which is I just gab and gab and gab and gab and gab in prayer, right? Maybe it's, it's time for us to go in solitude and say, all right, I'm gonna ask these questions of you, God, and then I'm just gonna listen. I'm just gonna listen to Jesus. And the last thing I'll say here, again, is related to this food or not food issue. Again, I wanna remind you that you, you don't just wanna not fast food or you wanna fast, fast food, right? You don't just wanna not fast food food and fast something else because you think that's going to be easier, right? Again, every single instance of fasting in the Bible is related to food. But again, the principle of emptiness tells us you can fast almost anything. I think this is a great opportunity for us to be challenged to listen to Jesus. All right, so when will I fast? What will I fast? And then finally, what do I do when I'm fasting? What do I do when I'm fasting? I think there might be easily a temptation in fasting, especially if it's food, to focus on the self. In other words, the emphasis of your fasting becomes on your hunger pains, like how miserable you feel, 
how painful it is and how much in agony you are that you don't have the Magnus Carlsen chess app, right? But if instead we can shift our focus away from ourselves and the hunger pains, because if we, if we just focused on the self, we might think that fasting is just be miserable for Jesus, right? Just because God likes it when I'm hurting and when I'm in pain for some reason, so I just gotta grit my teeth and bear it. If we shift the perspective though from self to God, if we focus on God in this, we realize that man, fasting isn't about making you miserable. Fasting is about making you ready. It's not about making you miserable. It's about making you ready. You're coming to God on empty, being ready to be filled with a faithful presence and love that he will commit to respond to us with. So focus on God, like I'm making myself ready. And when you have the hunger pains, cause you will, whether you're fasting food or not. Use those hunger pains, not as a means to focus back on yourself, but use them as an alert. In other words, when you move to go grab a hold of that thing that you're fasting because you believe that that's going to fill you, in that moment that you move to that stop, use it and say, ah, it's time to go to God on empty. It's time to go to God on empty. Because why? Well, I don't live on bread alone. I live on every word that comes from the mouth of God, which makes this next consideration probably, I can't stress this enough, probably the most important consideration in fasting. Be equipped with scripture when you are fasting. Be equipped with God's word. So that means maybe having a Bible, making sure you have a Bible to access at all times during your fast. Now, for some of you, that might be easy because it's on your smartphone. But if you're fasting something on your smartphone, maybe you want to plan and prepare to have a copy of your Bible in your briefcase, your backpack, your purse, or just even a small copy that you can fit in your pocket. But by all means, man, have a Bible to access at all times because we're coming to God on empty, asking that we would be filled with his word with God speaking to us because we believe that sacred scripture, this Bible that we have is God's word. It's God speaking to us. And then you might wanna consider too, is in this fasting period, you might wanna consider memorizing scripture. I find this interesting. If you look at Matthew 4, 4, when Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, from his Bible, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, It's not as though Jesus is out in the middle of a wilderness and he whips out an ESV study Bible and is ready to leaf through it. He doesn't have it. It's not with him. He's got that thing memorized. (laughs) He is so soaked and immersed himself in scripture, God's word, that he knows exactly how to combat temptation and to respond in that moment. So I would encourage you, take the time of fasting that when you got your Bible, maybe choose one verse or one passage, maybe two to memorize during that period of fasting that you've established. And then lastly, I would just encourage you to replace whatever mealtime you would have on that thing that you're fasting by dining on God's word. So in other words, if you're fasting lunch, don't just go to Subway with all your friends during lunch and say, I'm fasting, (laughs) right? Maybe take that time to get away with Jesus and grab your Bible and have that time with God in solitude. It's a great opportunity to replace whatever mealtime you would have when you'd be doing that thing by dining on God's word. And then lastly, all right, so we got, what do I do when I'm fasting? There's a second consideration. There's first like focusing on God in fasting, but then we have to acknowledge that we need to attend to the body as well, right? So there are some physical considerations that we need to be thinking through when we fast. The last thing I want you to walk away with is to hear that Seth told you that you should fast and then three weeks from now you're in the ER or like the hospital or something like that because you're dehydrated or whatever. So we need to think about some physical, like our body, we need to prepare adequately. And for some of you, you have medical conditions that might prevent you from fasting certain foods or fasting certain things. And you might wanna consider as a part of that plan, like go see your doctor first, somebody who knows your health record and can help you set up a plan to do this and to do it effectively. And so as a result of some of those physical considerations that we need to be thinking about, we don't have time to cover them here today, but what we've done is we've provided just a three-page bullet-pointed resource that will hopefully help you think through a lot of the stuff that we 
need to consider in creating a plan for preparing to fast, for what we do when we fast, and then even for weaning ourselves and our bodies off of a fast. So if you go to the Grace Church app, if you don't have the Grace Church app, you can search Grace Church, or Grace Ohio, rather, on the app store. And uh, you get the Grace Church app, you go to the messages, and in the messages, you can click on this Patterns That Change Us series, and this fasting conversation will come up. You click there, and you'll have the scripture passage of Matthew 4. You'll have this conversation in video and audio. You will also have this guide to fasting. You can access that, so you can consider some of those physical elements that we need to plan for when we dive into this practice or this habit, this pattern of fasting. So bottom line, fasting is not about making us miserable. It's about making us ready. Fasting is us acknowledging with our body and spirit that without God, without his provision, his protection, without his wisdom, his guidance, without his presence in our lives, we will forever be empty. I'd encourage you, maybe even this week, to go to God in prayer, even as we, as we sing in a moment, to continue to have this conversation with God. Ask him and invite him into this pattern in your life. Let's pray. Jesus, we just want to thank you for giving us and extending to us this pattern of fasting. Jesus, I, I confess in my own life, I have, uh, I've looked back at my past and I've not really understood, I've misunderstood your heartbeat and the purpose and the nature of fasting. I've been confused by it and just haven't really embraced it maybe as much as you would desire. Just confess that. Uh, but Jesus, I wanna thank you that your, your word, the Bible, is powerful enough to steer us into right thinking about why you handed this thing over to us and why you demonstrated what fasting is all about in that same Bible, in that same word. So Jesus, thanks for reorienting our understanding. Thanks for helping us see that we are able to approach you on empty. We are able to allow our physical condition to most closely parallel our spiritual condition so that we can be reminded that we require you to pour into us for every good and perfect thing that you want us to experience in life. So Father, thank you for giving this to us. Just ask that as we go forward here that we would do the appropriate conversational business with you in prayer to consider what this might look like in our lives and just ignite us with, with a passion, not to see fasting as something that earns something from you, but as a great gift that you have given to us that when we have access to can draw us closer to your heart and can make us more and more like Jesus. It's all because of you that that's even possible. So we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.